welcome to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 21, Life is Like a Bowl of Cherries. You know that death is an ever-constant threat to living beings, don't you? You do? Then why aren't you nervous? In the New Testament it tells about a man who was busy extending his barns, probably from hail to hail barns. And he thought he was going to have a marvellous future And suddenly the Lord came and tapped him on the shoulder and said, This night thy soul is acquired of thee. He hadn't time to catch up on his profits. Now just recently, a friend of mine, considerably younger than I am, had a peculiar malady, an attack by an unknown virus which has appeared in New York, Scandinavia, and the Far East, which is called Devil's Grip. Are there any other cases in this hall? No? Yes. Well, insofar as we're in this world, we are all in the Devil's Grip. And he was on the phone, having recovered from this malady, to me, and said, what are you going to talk about on Sunday? And I said, what would you like me to talk about? And he said, don't know. And I said, how about what might happen if we were suddenly to be seized by the devil's grip and instead of recovering, die? (coughs) How about putting ourselves on the spot and saying, supposing we were to die, immediately after our next sentence. What would the next sentence be? Could we think of one worth speaking out? He said, that's a very good idea. Talk about what you would say if you thought you had anything important to say just before death. And that reminded me of the death of Gautama Buddha. When Buddha was 80, he was dying some lady of strong affection had decided to poison him and he was dying and as was customary in the far east when a very wise man is dying the disciples gathered round and said before you go, O Master is there any special secret that you have kept back from us? If so, please tell us and Buddha replied I am not he of the closed fist, and then died. Now, he died very quickly after saying that, so they didn't have time, nor the facilities that we have today. So I thought that wouldn't do quite so well to introduce what we're going to talk about. And then I remembered a Hasid Rabbi, and he was the most wise man that has ever appeared on this globe. He was so wise that all his disciples hung on his lips. He's accounted for a very long bottom lip that he used to support. 
And when he was dying, he was weaker and weaker. And like myself, he had a very weak voice. That's our main point of correspondence. And needed microphones and things. I hope this isn't getting like a shaggy dog story. <laughs> Anyhow, his disciples said, Oh, most worthy and most wise rabbi that's ever lived, will you please, please tell us, is there some super message that you haven't revealed to us? Have you got something really tremendously important that you have kept secret? As wise men do, till on your deathbed and not before you will reveal it. And he looked very serious at them and then said, Yes, I have. Can you hear me, David? <laughs> there was a Jewish boy there named David, actually, at the time. Probably descended from that long line of uh, scepter holders. And he said, yes, there is one thing. If you must have a message, most important in the whole of my teaching, it is this, life is a bowl of cherries. <laughs> Saying which, she fell back on the pillow. <laughs> so they flashed this around the globe immediately to all the wise men in all the synagogues and shoes and Bowden and Hale and New York and... Omsk, Minsk, Tomsk, throughout all the Jewish world. That is to say, everywhere. And they flashed it by radio and by phone and by telex and by satellite to bring it up to date. And they began to meditate. And they meditated very fast because they hadn't long to live. And they meditated very hard, but they couldn't find out what it meant. So they wired back had the same procedures, radios, telephone, telexes, satellites. And they came back. Quick, rush to the rabbi and tell him, we have had this most wonderful message, but we have not been able to solve its riddle. We cannot understand it. Please ask him what he has to say about it. So they told him immediately. And he looked at them and said, So, you don't understand life is like a bowl of cherries. Well, I'm dying. I'm so weak I can hardly say now. So what am I going to say to you? If you don't understand it, life is not like a bowl of cherries. And then he died. <laughs> now, tell me, are there any Jewish Hasidim in the audience? I mean, apart from Hanukkah, obviously, he's one. But uh, others... Are there any there that can unravel for me the riddle of that famous rabbi? Why did he say life is like a bowl of cherries? Remember, we are about to die, and this is very, very important. These were his most important words. Can anybody solve it for me? Because they what? Because they rot. The cherries or the bowl. And the stone inside them? Hmm. Anything else? I'm not satisfied yet. When you're bad, that's like rotting quickly. And you don't mention the time. Yeah? Lots of little what? World. Little world. Like people. Ooh, could be getting warmer. 
you mind saying that loud enough so my microphone can pick it up? You mean he wanted to reverse it? A little joke on your deathbed. Warmer still. You have to eat them to experience them. But you know, the funny thing is about symbol, a metaphor. It has infinite extension. It isn't like a road sign, which has a definite fixed meaning. A symbol has infinite extension. We're getting somewhere, but we're getting nowhere already. We have to experience it, certainly. Things do go wrong at various rates, certainly, but that is not the meaning of that riddle. You don't think the chair is important? What is the significance of the chair? It's in the sun. I think Ben uh, Gerhardt is slightly warm. What's happening? Well, I'm not satisfied, so I'll give you the easier one. When Buddha said, I am not here of the closed fist, did he mean that he was of the open hand? Or did he mean that he simply was not of the closed fist? Is it the same statement in disguise? If you say yes, you'll have to prove it. I, I begin to detect a sort of underlying idea in the replies of the ladies different from the underlying idea in the men. Warmer, warmer. Come on, I'll put your thinking caps on. I'm going to give... I'll tell you what I'll do. When Marks and Spencer's fashion show is on, you need to talk. <coughs> I will give £10,000 to anyone who recognises me in the particular rig out that I've been wearing at that time. <laughs> yes, I mean it. What? Do another lady's suggestion. Vampire people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Seems to me it's the chalice. Seems to you it's the chalice. You're getting warmer. You're quite warm experiencing. You've got a chalice, you've got vampires, put them all together. <laughs> and that's very, very nice. That is very important. Put that in the chalice for me. And the vampires. And you know, when you explain a symbol, when you explain a, a metaphor, a metaphysical significance, the explanation is always just as bad as the riddle that you explain. Do you? Yes, 
But he didn't give an interpretation. But he's giving the most important message of his life. Well, so the answer mm. Put that in your chalice and smoke it. <coughs> With vampire intentions. Are we getting anywhere in this search? Are you beginning to put it together? The very important thing is that when he said life is like a bowl of cherries, he meant it, and it's a very, very important thing to say. And when they came back and said they couldn't understand it, then he said, well, then life is not like a bowl of cherries. Why did he reverse it? How awful. <laughs> what a horrid rabbi. <laughs> Not caring at his last. <laughs> well, can anybody tell me what initiation means? Starting them. Right, now this statement by the rabbi starts, or is supposed to start, a thought process. Right? Have we started one? Now, when you get a thought process started, you are an initiate. Now, is it worth staying at the level of an initiate? Or should you go on to become an adept? You know, I know an awful lot of people that are initiates. And it doesn't do you any good, you know. If you stay there, you must go further on. Now, I'm going to tell you what he meant. Remember I said it would be just as mysterious. He said life is like a bowl. One bowl of cherries, plural. Did you notice that, right? One bowl, many cherries. Are there any kids in here under four years of age? Yeah, send them home immediately. Anybody under four is not allowed to listen. Life is like a bowl of cherries. Now, haven't we said many times and been in trouble for saying it, my ladies, there is only one woman in the world. Is that right? Do we believe it, girls? Come on, come clean for once. Yes? Very definitely, yes, good. So, I didn't make it up. I mean, I <laughs> observed it, yeah? One bowl equals the one woman in the world. What do the cherries mean? They must mean all the men. Right? Life is like a bowl of cherries. Now, if you know that the bowl is the chalice, the vampire, who said that? If you know that it's only through experience that you can get at the cherries, What procedure have you to have in your thought to get the benefit of the statement there is only one woman in the world and many men? Of what use is that? What? Without the bone, the cherries is born. Every woman is born with 300 cherries <coughs> at birth. Yeah? 
What does it mean in utilitarian terms? Have you been listening to men of ideas recently? Anybody heard it? Any of it? Have you been enlightened? Did you hear Mr. A.J. Eyre? I didn't say, oh Christ, I didn't did you? A.J. Eyre. Did you hear that very well-known man at the young age of 22 being sent without a knowledge of German to listen in on German philosophical conversations and coming back and writing a book on it, uh, receiving a lectureship, and then as his present old age, he must be at least as old as I am, actually said it was all rubbish. But the spirit of it was all right. Did you hear that conclusion? Logical positivism is really rubbish in all its details, but the spirit of it is okay. The spirit of it is simply criticism. He's very sorry about all the rubbish in his early book. It was a product of youthful energy. The trouble is, there's a lot of people that keep finding that book on the paperback shelf and reading it, not knowing he's given it up. They do that when they're full of youthful en- energy. I'm glad I got rid of youthful energy. Terrible stuff. Only type of energy is just as good. Now, back to the uh, closed fist. When Buddha said, I'm not here the closed fist, he meant what you can do with the closed fist was not his technique. Now, what do you do with the closed fist, please? You aggress indiscriminately, don't you? You just thump everything. What do you do, therefore, with the open hand? (laughs) You discriminate. You discriminate. You might receive, but with an open hand, you lose a bit. You discriminate. And Buddha means intellect. And the intellect is the organ of discrimination. So therefore, he was saying, I'm an intellectual. Don't ask me anything really important, because I'm an intellectual. What he was saying is that he had produced an analytical method of extricating himself, and was offering the same method to everyone else, of extricating themselves from the fantasies of desire, tanha, thirst for life. And if that is a good thing to do, he succeeded. And he taught millions of people how to give up wanting to live, to give up the thirst for life. It was an intellectual solution of a problem of desire. The answer is give it up. The fist is your first weapon, an indiscriminate weapon, the will non-analyzed. Now, as the closed fist looks like a unity, can you draw me a parallel between the closed fist and the bowl that that mysterious rabbi was talking about. There's your closed fist, right? That's your bowl. Is it masculine or feminine? Feminine. Did you know that the principle of Saturn, which means grab, hang on, hold, is feminine? I think we've done that before, haven't we? And then if the fist means feminine, what does the open hand mean? 
the displays of the analytical intellect. But if the fist equals the bow, then the cherries must mean analytical demonstrations of the intellect. Life is really like a bowl of cherries because there is absolutely only one woman and that woman is non-analytic in essence. If you look at her being called a woman and she says something intellectual, do you know why she's doing it, men? To impress you, said girl. Yes? Uh, ladies, do you mind confessing? Have you ever pretended to like an intellectual proposition to a boy or a man? And if so, why? So you can count their cherries. Yeah? Now, cherry is also a euphemism, is it not? During certain erotic plays, don't you talk about cherries? Yeah? You don't? Oh, not that one. Right. Every man is a cherry, or has a cherry, and the one woman in the world is the bowl that, that cherry should be in. But there's always more than one cherry in that bowl, is there not? Doesn't this mean that women are naturally polygamous? Uh-huh. Well, she'll have to be, won't she? Why? Because Eve, Kava, is the mother of all male beings, is she not? As they have come out of her, every little girl has 300,000 for the starter, as they come out of her, doesn't she want at some time to reappropriate them to herself? Right, we'll accept this is basically the meaning of the rabbi's statement. Life is like a bowl of cherries. Life is like a big woman, a very, very big woman. Have you ever seen a very big woman? A friend of mine was 34 stones. Not bad, was it? Nice girl. Can you believe she took in ironing and accountancy for a living? Do you know why? She couldn't get out of the house. She'd been jilted years ago and she went into a funny state of despair. She didn't want to be seen in case any girl said, there is that girl that was jilted. So she stayed in the house and what happens when you're very sad? You know what happens when you're sad? You eat muffins. <laughs> so she stayed in this room and she ate muffins. And she got bigger and bigger and bigger. Till in the end, kind friends used to take the things, anything to do, say, will you add this up? Or will you wash this jumper or something? And she became an accountant washer-upper in her room. And then she died. You know what shape the coffin was? No, no, it's difficult to make a spherical coffin. That would have been too expensive. It was the shape of a Masonic ashtar. That is cubic. Well, how did they get it in the room to put her in it? And how did they get it out when she was in it? Can you guess? They took out the wall where the window was. And then bricked it up again. Luckily, since then, the particular town where she used to have been demolished. Otherwise, she'd have seen a very lot of bad, rapid brickwork. 
When you're very sad, if you're a bow and you haven't got a cherry, what do you do? You take in a camp to see and wash again. If you've got can friends to bring it to you. What was I supposed to be talking about? <laughs> I was supposed to be talking about the last words of a, a wise man, if there is one, yeah? And I'm telling you what that rabbi said because it's the most important thing anybody could say on their deathbed. The only thing worth knowing in this universe or any other universe you might fall into, because you could do that if you're careless, you know. You know when you die, instead of reincarnating and learning a lesson, you might fall into another world where a lesson is impossible. The earth is the only real place for lesson learning. Now here we are with this most important statement. And we're going to develop it and see if it is not truly the most important statement there is, or can be. There is one absolutely primary substance. If you don't believe me, believe Spinoza. He worked it out. Yes? There cannot be more than one substance, because by definition, substance is that which stands underneath phenomena. Right? Any philosophers in the house? You're the philosopher, aren't you? There cannot be more than one substance because substance, by definition, is that which stands underneath phenomena and only phenomena are the differentiators. So the non-differentiated is the substance and of this there can be only one. And this is why Spinoza said substance is God because the unity principle underlying all phenomena is that which we worship. We don't worship phenomena. We worship that principle which, if we find it, enables us to control and to generate and to remove phenomena at will. So this absolute substance, this one simple primary substance, this prima materia of the ancients, this wood, this hula, this stuff of the universe, must correspond with that bowl that holds the cherries. But if the cherries represent the male principle of differentiation, then it follows. What does it follow? Does something follow? Or am I leading myself up the path? There is one only substance corresponding with the closed fist and the bowl. The cherries are the differentiations, like the fingers when they open, are the differentiators. What does it follow? If there is only one substance, all phenomena that you have and that can stimulate you represent the cherries, don't they? Aren't you chasing cherries? Really? I suppose in that little suggestion, that euphemistic expression, maybe men have a cherry, maybe each man has a cherry. It's often referred to in love play as a cherry, is it not? I know plenty of men that think that the women have two cherries and they never think that they have one better than the two. Now, if it be true that this analogy holds, and I'm absolutely convinced that it does, there is only one woman, one bowl, one closed fist. There is only one primary substance. There is only... The cherries, poor phenomena, the open fingers, the display. And when women 
excuse me, please. Don't say anything, please. When women are pursuing men, which they do in a very peculiar way because they keep very still, but you know they send out angelic messengers into the biofield around. Do you know that they actually chase men with females? Do you know about a girl? I'm not inventing it, am I? In order to get hold of these cherries, these open fingers, these phenomena, the one primary substance, the one woman, the bowl, the closed fist, sends out, mysteriously, a power. Now, you know that if you examine modern physics, it will assure you quite correctly that all phenomena are plays of energy. The whole universe is nothing but power. But if power is the principle of unity underlying all phenomena, power must be woman. So the power itself is permeating infinite space, filling it absolutely. And the play of this power is the phenomenal world. So really, in the analogy, we can say men are playthings of women. That they have no real existence except in so far as women imaginate into them. Is that right? Is that right? Hmm? She said, hmm, the famous letter that signifies primordial substance, M, and the mother principle, also M. Primordial substance is also primordial power. To understand Hindu philosophy, and particularly Tantrism, you have to know the feminine principle is power. And the masculine principle is discrimination. Intellective consciousness. And yet there is not one without the other. Because this primordial power differentiates itself into phenomena in order to taste the cherries. Now this one primordial power used to be called God the Mother. But when it was called God the Mother, the women became very, very cheeky and they began to ill-treat the men. And they ill-treated them for thousands of years until they revolted. And then the men overthrew the women and they changed everything upside down. And they said the primordial power shall not be called God the Mother anymore, it shall be called God the Father. That was the victory of the Pa-triarchs over the Ma-triarchs. When the women were ruling thousands of years ago, Venus meant a man. Do you know the earliest figure we have of that mythical figure of Venus is a fully mature, bearded, adult male. And it was changed into a female when the men overthrew the women. The women were worshipping a fellow called Phenus. P-H-E-N-U-S. You might recognize it in its degenerate modern form. Women worshipped the male principle of intelligence. But they didn't tell the men that's what they were worshipping. They kept that a very dark secret. And when the men overthrew the women, they said, we'll have a dark secret too. We'll turn that masculine figure, Phenus, into Venus 
and draw it, paint it, represent it, model it as a woman. And then we will pretend that we are worshipping a woman figure. Just as the women kept it dark that they were worshipping a man figure, so the men keep it dark that they are worshipping a woman figure. They had already seen that women became quite uncontrollable when they were in charge of the symbology. So they also misrepresented it, so that today most people believe when they see the sign of Venus over a monkey's cage, they think it means female. But originally it meant male. The most important thing we can understand about this rabbi's riddle is this. There is absolutely, at the basis of all phenomena, at the basis of all appearances, at the basis of all separate forms, nothing but power. And this power is non-discriminate in itself because it is dedicated to holding in its closed fist, to putting in its bowl the phenomena that it generates. So the woman is dedicated to unity like man is dedicated to plurality. Woman keeps the home fires burning. Man goes out and posits himself on various planets around the solar system and eventually will be riding beyond the solar system with the same bird that he once sailed around the globe on Earth. Man pluralizes because he's looking for formal information for uniquenesses of shape. That is his function inside the universe. But woman's function is to take this information and digest it in her one substance. From it, from Eve, from Chava, came out all the men in the world. And they must return. But because of the economy of distribution of energy, this one woman could not remain as one woman in a very large mass of substance somewhere and let the men go out to infinite distances and then come back to her. It wasn't economic. So although there is only one woman, this same cosmic substance, this woman split herself into myriads of little bits which are what we know on earth as women. But unlike the men, this one woman never let go of her connection with herself. Which means that every woman is fundamentally a vampire, or, if you prefer it, a swallower of rationalists. The P-I-R in vampire means reason. The vampire means the woman digestive developmental force. Pluralization of the body of woman has not separated woman from her primordial characteristics. So that every woman is still a unity, like the original cosmic woman. Every woman knows this. Every woman knows that she's as much equipped with rights, whatever that mysterious masculine word might mean, as any other woman. To be a woman is to have absolute right to swallow the world. And any woman has the same right. In principle. Women know this and therefore their favourite letter is the letter M. 
letter M is the middle of the alphabet. How do you get an alphabet to have a middle when it's got an even number of letters in it? Can you tell me? Not you, you know about it. No Z. Spell the Z out because it's called the unnecessary letter and you then have 25 and if you divide them you'll find M is the middle letter. Middle letter placed there deliberately because from the centre of being it was pluralised outwards. Everything begins in the centre of being. Now what have we got that's useful for us? If we believe this, we must believe this. All phenomena are behaviours of one primordial substance. Every idea is a masculine because it's discriminated from another masculine. Like the stones of the cherry we had an offer, don't touch. They are separate. Men are separated in their ideas and they are unique in their ideas in the same way that women are not in any way unique. Every woman is the same as every other woman except for her superficial appearance. But every man in his depth is formally unique, utterly different from every other man. Now it is the duty of woman as such, there is only one of them in many bodies, to go around and collect, attract, draw, swallow, vampirize. Are you looking forward to your coming holidays, Ida? Yeah. 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 And in digesting it in herself, because there's only one woman. Do you know what happens to that which she digests? Do you know what a woman digests when she has a relation with a man? Do you know where it goes to when she digests it? If there is only one woman, can she keep it to herself? No. Through her being, being identical with the woman being of all women, all women get the benefit of any single woman's exploits. Now, how do you like that bit? That means that those of you who are smart at collecting information are working for the others that are not so smart. That means it's possible for the not so smart, the tall and the short and the ugly and so on, they can actually sit down very quietly and receive the benefits of all the other women's experiments in vampirization of men. <laughs> Who's wasting energy? The searchers. Oh, it's the searchers. And you're saying that because you've started to sit still. <laughs> it's the most peculiar thing about philosophers, you know. When you're one, you have a philosopher for one year old. When you're two, you have another one. When you're 92, you have another one. You can't be. Because of the accumulation of experiences you had. No, it doesn't. No, some people are smarter than others on the outside. But if you are smart on the outside, you must be dim on the inside. And if you are smart on the inside, you will always bother to look dim on the outside. But bound to get it through the one substance. And what happens to this? 
No, men are only phenomena in the minds of the one woman. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't say that. I never mentioned age. I know the one woman is eternal and ageless. Isn't she? She's a, an utterly immaculate, everlasting virgin, like a piece of long licorice we used to get when I was a kid. Used to cost a farthing in my day. Probably cost you 40p today. An everlasting <laughs> state. <laughs> well, you, only because you've already run around a bit. <laughs> Not true. That's <laughs> enough. <laughs> you know, chance is a fine thing. Actually, yes, I've watched you refusing offers in the last five years rather more than you could have comfortably dealt with. I'm sure you have. But it might be that you have a different reason now for refusing than you have then, because now I know that you've no intention of washing anybody's shirts unnecessarily. If they've got wives of their own, they can do it. <laughs> no, what is it, dear? <laughs> when you stop being flippant, Zita? She was right, yeah. I knew a wife that used to annoy her husband by turning the sheets on periodically to drive him out to bed. She was a very well-educated woman of blue blood. You know that feet are quite independent of aristocracy. Yeah. As a nurse, you know that. Well, what is it? What is it, Claire? You see, but we've already said that the man is there. He's a fantasy of the woman. Have you been studying Norbert Wiener recently? Yeah? You're talking about the principle, the principle of feedback, aren't you? Well, the fellow next year that you own and who is a precipitate of your imagination. <laughs> How do you feel, Peter, being a precipitate of that girl's imagination? You don't mind at all, you see? And the thing that's annoying you and boiling you up is that he doesn't mind being a figment of your imagination. <laughs> right? <laughs> that means you've got a complete carte blanche there for doing what the hell he likes. It's you precipitating him. And you precipitated him too, didn't you? You know why? Just a little one. We thought a measuring tape for the one outside in the hope that by studying the little one on the inside there's no other one on the outside he's trying to do. 
Yes, you must have an animus for your anima. Not true. You know, I know a lot of people with babies and they don't know what they're doing even at this very moment. Do you know that? Not at all, no. Because what we're aiming at is a unique, infinite number of phenomena, all delightful to God, equals primordial power. <laughs> well, we might be, because we're saying that there's a male inside every female and a female inside every male. That's unavoidable, because power itself is sentient. There aren't two primordials. Sentient power is the original. But the power is feminine, and the sentience is masculine. Ah, said Gautama Buddha, I don't like that brown in analysis, I'm going to switch it. We'll have power equals male and sensitivity equals female. Then we'll change male. Now this is why the rabbi said life is like a bowl of cherries. Because you could switch the symbology if you wish, couldn't you? Sometimes you switch it unconsciously and then you are in trouble. Now, I'm trying to be useful in case I drop dead in a minute. So, the most important thing anybody could say before dying, if you wish to help anybody that wasn't thinking about dying at the moment, is this. The ultimate origin of all beings is a power. But this power has the peculiar property of sentience. It feels itself. Now, because it is infinite... There is nothing other than it, and there is nothing outside it. So that whatever there is that we see, of phenomena that we see, of things, of beings, of existential objects, and so on, all phenomena are precipitates of this sentient power, an infinite field of sentient power. Now comes the hard bit. If this is true, and you have my rabbinical word for it, it is absolutely true, then everybody in this room has precipitated itself. Nobody in this room, or for that matter in any other room, it's not listening at the moment. Nobody is precipitated by a power other than itself. Now this makes us absolutely self-responsible. Is there an existentialist in the house? Yes, there is. And she's feeling very lazy at the moment. I'll say it for her. The essence of existentialism is the acceptance of the fact that the human being is in process, in each moment of choice, of designing his own being by his own mode of response to the phenomena he sees. What you see, the fool sees, not the same tree the wise man sees, what you see is what you will to see. You know, when I look around at all you people, do you know that all the differences are there? I'm very, very glad for those differences. There's a bow tie, and there's an ordinary type cravat tie, and some body with no tie, and so on. All these make a multifaceted, glorious world to look at. 
So I am willing from inside myself an infinity of differences. And I'm saying so are you. And I'm one of the little facets in your world. And you are willing the characteristics of everybody you see. And they are for you not there unless you will it and know that you will it. So when the rabbi reversed his statement, what he was really saying was, if all the wise men in the world don't understand that life is a bowl of cherries, then for them life is not a bowl of cherries. Only for the person who realizes it is a symbolic proposition true. Where does that place each one of us? It places each one of us in a position of absolute self-responsibility for his, her own destiny. We have no destinies whatever other than those we fabricate from moment to moment. If at the moment you disbelieve what I'm saying or a bit of it or accept some of it, that disbelief, that criticism, that acceptance is a choice made by your will. And in the process you appropriate to yourself an idea. And when you appropriate an idea, you do so for some purpose that you have, whether you know it or not, you have purposes. And this purpose is charged affectively. That is, emotionally. Every idea has an emotional charge. And every emotional charge changes your body chemistry. How do you like that horrible thought? That when you have an idea, if you like it or dislike it, your like or dislike is an energy that synthesizes a chemical that will reinforce the idea that you're contemplating. Either to love or hate. You will either precipitate into your body in an act of loving appreciation. The chemistry of love equals perfect function at some point. Or, if you hate, that hate is an affective charge, an emotion, you will synthesize the chemistry of hate so that your physical body, your actual physical body, is a chemical precipitate to the totality of your emotional charges from the ideas in which you have acquiesced. You ever had a migraine? I've heard about them, I've been told about them, I believe they're pretty horrid. Has anybody had one? You've had a migraine. Is it nice? Would you like another one? Thank you. Do you know that when you got it, you made it? That puts you on the spot, doesn't it? Because you have no ground for being mysterious when you get it, have you? Whatever we get, we have will. Whether it's a malfunction like that, or a function like that, we have willed it for some purpose. And the way we are willing now, here, at this moment, the way we are willing to consider the ideas that we are considering, and the way we like or dislike what we hear, the dislike or the like is an emotive charge which will synthesize the chemistry that reinforces the idea. So that we can't get rid of the idea once we've acquiesced in it, 
because we have made a chemical precipitate which resonates with the idea and keeps that idea within our organism. Now, how do we feel about that? I'll forgive the pun and say yes. Every cherry is something you cherish. Hidden in the word cherry is the word hierarchy. It means differentiation of levels of power. And when you choose, you always choose towards either increase of power or decrease of it. When your increase of power has put you in a position of authority, you may tend to re-choose further, higher and higher powers. But when you find out that the implication of power is increased responsibility and increased criticism from other beings also pursuing power, you may come to the point where you deliberately choose less power, where you choose to make yourself deficient, to avoid the feedback of success, the feedback of acquired power. Do we feel comfortable at what we are talking about? The one bowl is our own substance. As to our substantiality, we men are women. As to our analytical power, we are men. If there is any analytical power in women, and I can assure you fellas there is, because they can look at you and dislike your tie or like your cut trouser and therefore show that they are discriminate. The discriminative power in a female is male. The affective reaction in a man is female. There are two factors there. Put your middle finger down and you have two pairs. Little finger, physical body. Ring finger, life force. Both feminine. Orientation to physicality is feminine because the one primordial substance is the body of reality. And that body feels itself so that sentience and body go together and they are both feminine because they are recipients of stimuli. They are recipients of outer forces coming to them and changing them. They are passive acceptors of stimuli and therefore feminine. On the other side here, we have the index finger that indicates points, that's intellection, and initiative, the thumb, the pusher. So we have initiative and intellection, both male, and we have sensitivity and substantiality, both female. So that the woman is orientated to the physical body by the fact that she's a childbearer and a menstruator both of which keep her in the physical body, far more than a man can keep in his. So that woman is concrete, substantial. She is the continuum principle. She is the sustainer. She is the preserver of reality. But the man with his intellectual, analytical capacity is the destroyer because his analysis takes everything to pieces. And his initiative continuously interferes with the status quo and changes it. So the principle of conservatism is female and the principle of liberal interference is male. But every human being has all these qualities together. And 
with Saturn on your middle finger, you have a possibility of binding those two pairs together. If you bind those two pairs together, as the alchemists would say, you have proportioned the four elements of your being by the mysterious alchemical mercury. The mysterious antimony of the alchemists. The mysterious Saturn. Saturn means the principle of comprehension, the principle of grab, the principle of get hold of, the principle of seizure, the principle of whatever you are doing, concentrate on. Get the full value of your experience by concentrating, because you cannot get the value of your experience if you don't concentrate. But the symbol of concentration is Saturn. And to make quite sure that you don't lose yourself in the getting, like Paul Getty, you have to let go of your Saturn in the very act of concentrating and substitute Jupiter for it. Jupiter means expansion, where Saturn means contraction, coverage. You have to remind yourself that you are a free being in the very act of committing yourself to bondage. When you identify with something, you become bound in your identification. If you don't identify, you never learn anything. But if you do merely identify and forget that you are also free, you are lost irretrievably to yourself unless some being from outside by grace comes to rescue you. Like the great teachers have been represented to me, rescuers sent from the universal sentient power. Where are we placed in the middle of this? Do we feel comfortable to know that everything we have down to the minutest little bone in our little finger, every cell in our body, is a precipitate of our own intention to be in that way? How do we feel? Happy? Yes? You mean in theory or in practice? Very good. Mm-hmm. You're happy with that. There's the only freedom in there. Could you have said that with equal conviction 12 months ago, Greta? No. 10 years ago? No. Last week? You mean you've not improved since last week? You know, it's only by restatement of these principles. Every moment, otherwise you lose them. It's an essential of esoteric Persian thought that the world is reposited every here and now. And if you don't know that, instead of repositing it, you let it drift and then it isn't your world at all. It's somebody else's world imposed upon you. So you can't afford not to have improved since yesterday. To let what? In the here now, do you mean that you would will in one here now to interfere with another here now? No. That's very illogical. The very principle of here nowness is that you know a very peculiar thing. Time is running through here now. No, here and now does not move. 
Here and now is the Parmenidian sphere of unchangeability, here and now. But time is running through it. And all you have is an observer's peephole like that, here and now. And time is running through it. Can you feel the presence of here now? Now? Can you feel the here nowness of now? And can you feel time running through it? Can you watch your thought process running through now? Are you aware of a movement going on in your thought? Are you capable of stopping it for long? Split second. And then it goes. So that what is in that little peephole here now is gone. And it's been displaced by something else. But your here now is the same. So that when you understand here now, you do not try for a moment to make a statement here now about another here now elsewhere. Because there isn't one. Here now is infinite sentient power. It's not somewhere else, it's here now. All of it. But time is running through it. And time is a function of it within it. So you cannot make an undertaking today for tomorrow. Because tomorrow will not be like today when you make the decision. It's like a New Year's resolution. You make it, but you don't remember till next New Year's Eve that you made one last year, which you forgot. Mm -hmm. You see, that's true, that here now is like that. And the things that appear here now are always in here now. And the here now doesn't change. And the changeless presence can only be the ultimate original substance. Because that can't go anywhere, can it? The infinite substance can't go somewhere, can it? Because it's already infinitely extended. So we're inside a very peculiar thing, a continuum of infinite sentient power. Isn't that nice? You know the reason we're here is because that power is leaning on us all and individually. It leans on every point of matter from all around spherically and that keeps us in being. Now how do you feel if you know there's an infinite sentient power all wise, all powerful is leaning on you now where you are, spherically, on each one of us. How does it feel? Let it keep leaning. Wouldn't it be a good idea not to make mistakes about its intention? Its intention is to uniquify you. To make you like nothing else. To make you a facet of a cosmic diamond that will flash the light in a way that no other facet does. And that in the name of that uniqueness, it is prepared to do anything necessary to you. But it isn't other than yourself, pushing you, torturing you, to make facets. And it doesn't care what it does, because it's out for lots of facets. I think you once said, didn't you, Dad, that uh, God could be surprised by something a human being might do because man has free will but God can't be surprised can he? 
How can God be surprised? God is this infinite, absolute, sentient power. What would surprise him? The concept of surprise is that you are outside the system and you insert something into the system that wasn't there, to the staff, to what was there. You cannot be surprised. And nevertheless, we have free will. Why can't our free will surprise him? Answer, he gave it to us. And what he sees is the infinite possibilities of an infinity of choices. And he also has a very canny trick that he does. He is able, because he is this sentient power field, to alter the resistance in any given direction. And when he reduces the resistance in a given direction, we human beings experience that reduction as an inclination to action. But he's also intimately aware of our innermost motive. Because in giving us the freedom to be ourselves, that is none different, substantially from himself, he has rescued us from mechanical reactivity only at the expense of making us responsible for our own motivation. But he, because we are in him, of him, we are phenomena within his substantial being, he knows our motive. And he lets us be free to have that motive. And then he makes a line of least resistance for us so that we can accomplish the attainment of that which we set up as a goal and then pay the price. And that means another facet on our discussion. That is leading us into temptation. And a lot of people have been very puzzled why the Lord's prayer says to God, do not lead us into temptation, as if God, the Father, were the devil. But there is no tempter other than time. Temptation is time-tation. The tempting temptation means time. Time itself is the movement of phenomena. Each phenomenon that you see, you appropriate or reject or remain indifferent to. If you appropriate a phenomenon to yourself, which for you is first appropriated as an idea, Gospel go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is Aquarius, isn't it? In the symbolism. And that means memory. You get an idea through a response in your cosmic substance, and this response appears to you as an idea. That's Matthew. Then you go into Mark, the lion. Symbol of Mark is the lion. You have the carriage. I have an attitude towards this. I will appropriate it. I like it. Then you go down into Luke, symbol of bull, the bully or belly. And there you have to digest what you've had the courage to take on. There is no escape because that God that everybody worships is nothing but the infinite substance of which we are modalities. And we are only modalities and limited to the modal operation if we ourselves identify with our human beingness and forget our divinity. 
because they're not absolutely different from the substance of them, because we can't be. Because phenomena, that is our physical appearances, etc., phenomena are nothing but the behaviours of this substance. But this substance is universal power. So there is no difference between a phenomenon and the substance, is there? Other than this, we see the phenomenon and forget that the phenomenon is the substance there self-phenomenalizing. Where does that place us? We are not other than that of absolute substance which is God phenomenalizing ourselves as body. We are not different. If we identify with the body aspect of ourselves, we finite ourselves to the body and to the reactivity implied in being a body. We go under the law of that to which we give our credence. We go under the law of that to which we identify. So if we identify ourselves as a physical body, we go under the law of physical bodies. And we can't do anything at that level other than react as bodies. But supposing we make this leap like Spinoza did, all these phenomena are nothing but modalities of this primordial substance which is God. So instead of identifying with the form, the phenomenal appearance, we identify with the substance of the same form. Can you see the switch? And if you move from looking at the phenomena, your shape, this hand, this hand, and so on, instead of doing that, you feel your substantial self-presence. The moment you feel your substantial self-presence, you have got God. Right there in your physical body. Not far away. At hand. In what you are doing. The substance of that God is your own very substance. Your body is God phenomenalizing as you. When you think about your body as a body finite in space-time matter and you forget your divinity, your ultimate substantiality as sentient power, you go under the law governing space-time matter bodies. But when you remember that you actually experience yourselves as substantial presences of sentient power, at that very, very here now, you are divine. What happens then? To whom do you pray? I hope you pray to God. Because if you were to identify with your finitude at that moment, you would have alienated yourself from your infinity, wouldn't you? So if in identifying yourself with your physical body, you forgot that your substance is infinite and eternal, you'd have lost yourself in identification with finitude. You would then be in a personal and private hell. Whereas, if you remember, your infinity of sentient power substance, at the very moment of breaking the identification with your phenomenality as a physical body, in that moment of remembering your infinity, all the other bodies in space, time, matter are yours. 
That's junk. Lifted up in the spirit. Now how does that fit? That any one of you divinizing himself in this way has an absolute right over every other body in the room. How's that? Quite. See, it's reciprocal, isn't it? Now, how do you feel about that? No. The only body is the absolute sentient power substance. We define it, but we don't actually make anything, do we? No, but in terms, we give the appearance of it. It's only to ourselves. Now, if people forget that they're doing it to themselves, there is the problem. But if I accept that in my divinization of my self-presence, all these bodies are mine, I must also remember that they're in the same position in relation to me. And if they came to do something to me, that is not coincident with my absolute infinite sentient power analysis of what I need in this place, then they are not in the condition of the identification with the absolute that would justify their appropriation of this body. Somebody has to stop it. That's exactly that, that is the meaning of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's God had to stop it. It can't be anyone else, can it? Because this starting can only be the substance of reality itself. It can only start. Somebody has to emulate it. You were saying about right. Right and might differ in one letter, don't they? The GH in both words symbolizes power. Its primordial use is effort. When you lift up a heavy stone, you go, and that used to be the pronunciation of that GH. You can see it slightly in German, where Macht shows in the CH, the Ach, the effort. So that we used to say Meicht and Reicht, like a Scot says Recht, as much as a German does. And doesn't he say things like a drawbridge and mix, mix, mix? The GH in night is the same thing. Night means negation of power. Might means substantiality of power. And right means discrimination of power. So that you're only right when you are able to discriminate the substantial powers within being. If you can't discriminate, you may be able to punch hard. You've got might. But if you can't discriminate, you are not right. Absolute discrimination is absolute right. Absolute power is absolute might. And absolute power and negation of power is absolute night. It's obvious that we have to get right as well as might. How are we feeling so far? Well, the idea of coming in first, the 
have to say, you have to understand that parable that you started with, of the man having all his barns full and ready for a great life. So you haven't to worry about your barns, have you? No. Because if, if you allow everybody access to you, then you might empty your barns. So you haven't to care if the barns are emptied. Because the original infinite substantial power, if your motive is right, will give you full barns or empty barns according to your need. Need is the reverse of the word deen, isn't it? Yes? Need, deen. Is that right? Dean means to judge. A need is what you judge that you would will to have. There are no needs other than wills to appropriate. How do you like that? So when a pop singer sings, I need you, I want you, but that he's merely saying it is my will to grab you, isn't he? Appropriate, yes. It's from Latin proprium, ownness. Yes, ownness. That which makes a thing essentially what it is, is its proprium. To take that away from where it is, is an act of appropriation. The legal term appropriation, in popular language, is pinching, swiping or knocking off has exactly the same meaning, however you do it. But if you appropriate it through the appropriate techniques, like Stonehouse did in a circular tour, uh, if you don't get found out, it's yours. But every ownership is based on what the word own means, and the word own is the same word as the word owe. Now, to owe something to something is to have derived it by appropriation from that something, isn't it? But the only real owner and absolute possessor of all properties is the original infinite power, the sentient power of the absolute itself, the universal substance. To that substance belongs everything. All things are properties of that universal substance. And we, as separate finite manifest beings, owe everything that we are phenomenally to that universal substance. We've appropriated it. Now, when we split the thing into bowl and cherries, aren't we deliberately dividing what cannot be divided? Because what God puts together, no man should put a sand there. The concept of the bowl and the concept of the jellies are conveniences for rabbinical analysis, aren't they? The reality is that there is a sentient power which functions as bowl and cherries. Yes, but the bowl has room to change Because she owes everything to the cherries, doesn't she? Because the cherries are the means whereby she is stimulated into activity. You know, M1 is the face of woman when there's no man about. Black despair. Yeah? 
He said, Listen. <laughs> Who said that? Who said, huh? Who said that? I heard the voice saying, huh? He had a funny intonation. It's almost sounded Jewish, was it? Or was it not? Huh. I think whoever said that's got Jewish ancestry left in the way it Was it a voice of protest? In fact, I thought it was you. I've always suspected you of having Jewish blood in you somewhere. You came out in the... Hmm. Throw it behind your nose and see if you don't feel Jewish. Hmm. Express disapproval of a proposition. Hmm. It's H-N you are uttering, isn't it? G hierarchy, H-N, negation. Hmm. It means that's what you think. The fact is that you, personally, in your life, have appropriated many cherries, right? You said, mm. <laughs> Yeah? An awful lot of people living in your bowl. But you did carve the bowl to appropriate the cherries and put them in, didn't you? And if you conceive your, a little exercise for you, I Conceive yourself as in a manless world. I mean, really manless. No masculine qualities, whatever. That means no discrimination, no intellectual processes, no discrimination, yeah, and no initiative. Just you and all the other girls in one big porridge. How do you like it? Oh, another primordial barbarous word of invocation. Yeah. You had the rest, and mach, and nicht. Now we've got, oh. <laughs> the fact is that when you're being honest with yourself, it's extraordinarily difficult. You know perfectly well that the polarization, the opposite concepts in the mind of man, of substance and phenomena, substance and modalities, is indivisible. You can't have a bowl without cherries. That's an abstract idea. Because the cherries are the phenomenal side of the same substance which is conceived as an empty bowl. You can't have boys that haven't had a mummy to give birth to them, can you? And you can't have mummies to give birth to anything but boys unless you impose a dirty cosmic trick on them. By saying, well, have a girl now and then she can wash up. I mean, they must have some use girls, mustn't they? Is that right? Are we feeling comfortable now? Why not? We are all self-precipitated, self-phenomenalized, self-punished, self-rewarded, self-lost, self-found. You're happy with that, aren't you, Greta? Yeah. Why aren't you grinning when you say it? Yes, and it would be an erroneous concept, wouldn't it? The idea of leaving is rubbish because you are actually inside and the modality of an infinite sentient power which being infinite there is nowhere where it is not so that you can never leave it which is why one of our apostles says I am persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's meaning the logic of substance that statement. 
Well, because in Scorpio you are identified with the space-time matter process. And where that Scorpion, which means attachment, is transcended, you change the symbol from a, a marine type of creature, water meaning the psychic life, to an aerial being meaning the intellectual life. Suddenly this transcends its identification with emotion and becomes a pure logos knower. The eagle flies up and gets a perfect panoptic view of total reality. The scorpion has become the eagle. So by the same argument, the dragon which is in the bottomless pit is nothing but the intellect of God in its purity. When seen without eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Remember we're all suffering from the biting of that tree of knowledge. Human beings think they know what is good and what is evil. And they conduct their lives on that principle. But actually they don't know anything about it. And all their choices are wrong because they think they know what is good and what is evil. But there is no good that is not presupposed in the evil. And there is no evil that doesn't presuppose the good. And they are simultaneously mutually interpenetrating. They are discriminable, but they are not substantially distinct. Thank you for listening to the Eugene Halliday Podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes.